Well, Sabbath greetings to every one of you. We're here today to uh, observe God's Sabbath and to gather together in fellowship. I remember the very first time that I was uh, attending church services. It goes long back, back a long way to 1965 in Sydney. And I remember in particular the sermon uh, that we heard probably about three or four months into my time that I was attending. The minister gave an excellent sermon where he showed very clearly that we have to rely on God for all of the spiritual gifts that we need to be a Christian. The key scripture that he used at that time is to be found in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. I thought we might uh, start the sermon and uh, go through some of the principles here using this as you might say a foundation for the subject today. Philippians chapter 2 and we're going to start here in verse 12. Remember of course that Paul was a man who had a great deal of uh, you might say natural ability. Uh, he had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a man who was well acquainted with the scriptures. He was a man who you might say was very righteous, very very uh, particular in the way he kept the Sabbath, uh, all of the, the Jewish laws and the commandments from the Torah. And so in Philippians chapter 2, when you read this particular scripture, you can see that Paul had grown a great deal in his understanding. He said in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says something which really had a great impact upon me at the time. It says, For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I think most of us will be prepared to acknowledge and recognize that we need God's help to do of his good pleasure. We understand and recognize that the Holy Spirit is the power by which we are able to obey God. But did you realize did you understand, have you ever thought about the fact that the very ability to have the will to do God's good pleasure is also given by him? In other words, God gives us the desire to obey him. Now, we have our natural abilities, our natural desires, our natural inclinations. There is, I think, within every human being a desire to know what the future holds and they want, every human being wants to know what happens when they die and where they will go. There are many people who, who want to obey God. But you know what this scripture tells us that is that God actually gives us both the will and the ability to do of his good pleasure. And so the particular minister who gave the sermon carried on and he showed so many other different uh, areas of our Christian life where we need to trust and to rely on God. Let me show you another one here, this one to be found in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 8. We just go back a, a few pages to the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, notice what it says. It says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So God gives us grace, he gives us faith, and he gives us every one of the spiritual abilities that we 
have to ask God for because we do not have of ourselves the ability to have those spiritual gifts. So the sermon today is going to concentrate on one particular dimension of the Christian life, which I think if you think about it and and apply this principle that we're going to be talking about, you will be able to reach new and broader and, and deeper understanding of the plan and the purpose of God in your life. What am I talking about? Am I talking about faith, love? Am I talking about joy or peace, the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Well, they are all certainly very important. But the particular subject we're going to talk about today is God's righteousness as opposed to our own righteousness. Let me explain. If we think about it for a moment, Jesus Christ was the most righteous person that ever lived on the earth. In fact, he never sinned once. Now, let me ask you this question. Was that his righteousness? His own personal human righteousness? Or what else could have it have been? Well, we learn from Scripture that Jesus Christ himself relied upon the righteousness of his Father. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read parts from verses 8 to 21. Romans chapter 5, starting here in verse 8. It says, But God commends his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you get that, brethren? We're not actually saved by his death. We're saved by his life. So think for a moment, if you can, about the fact that most people understand a certain amount, if they're Christians, that is, They understand a certain amount about the Christian life. They have the Bible available to them. Many people are sincere and dedicated. Many people trust in God. They they pray to God. They want to obey God. But brethren, God has called us to an understanding about righteousness that very few people, other people understand. And we're going to explore that here today. Notice as we carry on here, in, once again in Romans chapter 5, notice what it said in, again in verse 10, that we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, but we are saved by his life. It is Jesus Christ living his life in each one of us that enables us to obey him. And it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us that makes us acceptable to God. In fact, brethren, I need to be quite clear about this. Our own righteousness, that is our own self-righteousness, is of no value to God. You think of how many people that you know who are sincere, who do try hard to be righteous, but they rely on their own righteousness 
And that is sadly what many people in the religious world understand and that's all they understand. Now you might ask the question, you say, well, what does God want? Does he want a righteous person or an unrighteous person? Well, obviously God is far happier to have righteous people than unrighteous people. But if that righteousness is not God's righteousness, then as I said before, and we will prove in this sermon, it is no, of no real lasting value to God. Let's read on here. We're going to drop down to verse 17, where it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in this in life by one Jesus Christ. Did you get that? It says that righteousness is a gift. We often think of the Holy Spirit giving us the gifts of love and joy and peace and long-suffering. But there it is. Righteousness, that is the righteousness of God, is a gift of God to us. And as we exercise it, it actually replaces our own righteousness. Now, there was a man in the Old Testament who went through a terrible amount of suffering to learn this lesson. But I can tell you, because Job has learned the lesson and learned it well, he is going to have a high position in the kingdom of God. Now, God looked down on Job and he saw at that time that Job was the most righteous man alive on earth. In fact, you'd, you'd wonder who God, if you look down today on six and a half billion people, who he would say is the most righteous person. I don't know who it would be. I know it's not me. And I'm pretty certain it's not you. But then, of course, maybe one of you do think that you are the most righteous person on earth. Well, of course, I'm, I'm jesting a little here. But if we go back to the book of Job, we're going to see what a, an amazing lesson Job had to learn. Let's start here in the book of Job in chapter 1. <clears throat> now, a lot of people have wondered who this man Job was. Uh, there are certain indications that he was uh, um, alive maybe at the time of the, the judges or uh, Joshua or around that time. But we don't know. It doesn't say. All we know is that he lived in the land of Uz. Notice uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and hated or eschewed evil, as it says in the old King James. Now, of course, for all of those living in Australia, you understand and realize that we call our country and we uh, abbreviate it down to Oz. Well, of course, Job uh, was not an, an Aussie. He was an Uzi. <laughs> he certainly was not uh, an Australian, uh, but lived somewhere in the, in the, in the modern Middle East. Notice what it says about him. It says in verse 3, His substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went out and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. So he was a wealthy man, and his children benefited from his wealth. Now what did God think of him? Notice verse 6. <coughs> now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now you might ask the question, well, how come Satan could be amongst the sons of God? Well, he was an angel. And even though he was a fallen angel, God has acknowledged and recognized and allowed him to maintain or to retain a certain position amongst the angels. I don't know how that is or why it is, uh, but here it is very clearly stated. Notice in verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence come you, or where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. You know, you'd have to say that's probably the most non-answer answer that he could give. A real cynical sort of sarcastic, well, don't ask me what I've been doing, God. That's my business. I know the one, this one thing, and that is that Satan was bound to this earth, and so that's all he could do. And so he gave this sort of sarcastic uh, uh, answer to God. But God didn't let that perturb him, because notice what he said. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? A perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews, that is, hates evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? that you have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Why did Satan say that? Because that's how Satan thinks. That's what Satan would have reacted like. And so Satan assumes that all human beings are like him. But this man, Job, was different. This man had a level of righteousness that far exceeded the normal human being that was alive at that time. Notice as we read verse 11. Uh, sorry, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yes, they've slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I am escaped alone to tell you. And while yet he was speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, bands sorry, and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yes, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. What was Job's reaction? 
oh no, disaster. Why has God allowed this to happen? I'm going to give up my righteousness. I, this is not worth it. No, his reaction was a perfect reaction. He said in verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brethren, would your reaction have been like that? I don't think I could have reacted as perfectly as that. that. You know, to have someone lose absolutely everything and then turn around and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, the story doesn't end there. Do you remember that God had said to Satan, you can do all that you like to him, but just don't touch him. Well, chapter 2 tells us, without going through all the detail, I'll just paraphrase it, Satan came once again before God. And God said, have you noticed my servant Job, how righteous he is? You destroyed everything he has, and he still didn't curse me. And Satan, once again, in a cynical way, said, ah, yes, but... And we'll just read verse 4 here. <coughs> Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So what did God say? Oh, no, no, you can't do that. No, that's, that's not allowed. No. God said, you can do that. You can do to his body what you like. Just don't take his life. Well, Job's wife had sort of put up with all of this so far, but when she realized what was now going to happen, and as he broke out in, a, in an absolute plague of boils all over him, she said, Job, curse God and die. And so you can see that Job had no one, no one to support him, no one to be there with him. He'd lost everything he owned. And now here he was smitten with horrible, painful, pus-filled boils all over him. It says from the crown of his head to the toe of his foot. Here was Job in an absolutely terrible condition. How long did it last? Well, the Bible tells us. It didn't last just a few days. It didn't last just a few weeks. In fact, if we go to Job chapter 7, and in verse 3, Job was sitting in front of three of his friends who'd come to comfort him. And he said, so am I, so am I made to possess months of vanity and wearisome nights are appointed to me. His three friends... Bildad the Shuhite and Eliphaz and one of the other friends that he had had come to comfort him, console him and even give him advice and counsel and help that might help him to restore himself. But you know what? Those three friends turned out to be like three enemies to him because they thought, well, he must have sinned and he had some secret sin and that's why he was being punished by God and all he had to do was to confess his sins, as they say in the uh, uh, Appalachian Mountains area, all I had to do was fess up and uh, confess his sins and he would have been forgiven and everything would have been restored to him. Well, of course, that was not what God was doing. God knew he was righteous. 
God knew he was not a, an inveterate sinner. So what was the story? Why was God putting him through this? What was the purpose of such terrible suffering? We're going to see the answer to that. But it does take, as it says here, months for Job to come to a complete understanding. Notice what it says here in verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. You know, Job was in such a terrible state with these horrible, you know, weeping sores that he had all over his body that the only solace, the only comfort that he could find was to drag himself out each morning and go across to where the, the cook took the ashes out from the fires that, and uh, when they cleaned out the, the fireplace or the, the stove or the oven or whatever it might have been, and this pile of, of grey, dry ashes was, was heaped up in the, in the backyard or wherever they, they had that. And... Job found that the only place where he could get some relief from the burning, uh, you know, painful boils that he had all over his body was to actually drop himself onto this heap of dry gray ashes and that would absorb the weeping sores and the pus that was coming from it. I mean, it's, it's horrible to talk about, absolutely horrible to talk about. But as it said there in verse 5, as a result, his whole skin had dried up with and had become clods. And it would appear, I, I hate to say this, that there were even maggots that had got into the flesh. It is just loathsome. He stank terribly. When his three friends came, they sat and looked at him for one whole week without saying a word. They couldn't believe that this was the same man that they used to visit who was dressed in, in the finest of silks and, and robes and, and a mitre on his head and, and sat on a, on a, on a big, uh, if not a throne, certainly a, a large chair where he meted out wisdom and justice and advice and counsel to so many people that came. And here's this same man now, just a gray shriveled up human being it's it's hard for us to imagine notice what it says here in verse 12 he says am i a sea or a whale and you set a watch over me when i say my bed shall comfort me my couch shall ease my complaint talking to god he says then you scare me with dreams and terrify me through visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my life this man was in a wretched physical state mental state and i'm sure spiritual state he was bewildered absolutely astounded as they would say gobsmacked trying to understand why all this was happening to him and you know what he couldn't die because god had said to satan he wasn't to take his life and he was saying, I wish I could just die. This would take it away. Verse 18, he says, I loathe it. I would not live always. 
Let me alone, for my days are vanity. So he was in a terrible state. Now, what was the reason for it? Well, we read from chapter 8, going right the way through uh, chapter after chapter, seeing that, that these friends of his had this one idea that if he just would confess his sins, God would forgive him and restore everything. It was a wrong premise, but they never budged from it. And the three of them, you might say, conspired against Job in a way to totally discourage him. And uh, he had to constantly counter their criticisms, uh, their, you might say, their accusations. Notice in chapter 10, in chapter 10, in verse 1, he says, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Notice he says in verse uh, 7, he says to his friends, You know that I am not wicked, and there is none that can deliver out of your hand talking, I guess, to God in that particular point. But he, he knew that he was not a wicked man. In verse 15, he says, If I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. Therefore, see you my affliction. Brethren, have you been through, or are you actually going through right now, a trial that leaves you confused, that makes you wonder, what is God doing with me? Why am I suffering like this? What have I done? What have I done that God, to deserve this treatment? Why is it that people are attacking me? Why is it that I'm stricken with this disease? Why is it that I'm in financial ruin when I was such a careful manager of my money? Why is it that my wife is treating me the way she is. What have I done to deserve this? I don't know what trial you might be going through right now, but if you are, I hope this sermon might be able to help you because Job certainly had to learn a lesson. Let's notice here in chapter 13. These three friends of his had been accusing him And so he says in chapter 13, verse 1, Lo, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, the same do I know also. I'm not inferior unto you. And then he says something really interesting. He says, surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. Now, I've written in my margin, Job got his wish. God did reason with Job in the latter part of the book. But we won't get to that just yet because, like Job, we've got to understand and see what he went through. Verse 4, he says to his friends, But you are forgers of lies. You are all physicians of no value. Oh, that you would all together hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Hear now my reasoning, and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. How often have you used the same sort of words? Now, you listen to what I have to say about this. You listen to my thoughts on it. Well, the way I see it is, well, if you ask my opinion, 
So often we as human beings really deep down think that we have the answers to everything. Everyone else makes the mistakes. Everyone else is not doing the right thing, but we are doing the right thing. We think correctly. Our reasoning is, is correct. Brethren, don't be deceived. Human nature is deceitful and desperately wicked, and no one can know it. We actually have to go to God and ask him to help us see what we are like deep down inside. Hold your place here in Job, <coughs> and let's go back to Psalm 139. King David was a man who did understand. Actually, it's forward to Psalm 139 because Job comes before the book of Psalms. But here in Psalm 139, Job was a man who knew he had to ask God for help. <clears throat> in Psalm 139, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, you don't find Job saying this. Job said, I'm righteous. I'm good. I'm not wicked. You know, before we come into God's church, we do that as well. We say to the minister, well, I've been a good Catholic or I've been a good Lutheran or I've uh, been a good if you weren't religious you might say I've been a good person you know God wants us first of all to search and to seek out our sins then we have to in repentance come to acknowledge and recognize that it's not just our sins that we have to repent of but the very nature that causes us to sin and so most of us, as God grants us the gift of repentance, we come to see that. We acknowledge that left to ourselves, we as human beings are capable of all the sins, the most wicked and the worst sins of mankind. Because we're a human being. Though we're made in the image of God, we have tasted of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And human beings live by that creed. They live by the thought that they want to be good, they want to do good, but more importantly, they want to be thought of as good. We as human beings are made in the image of God. We want to be like God, but we want to do it on our own strength and through our own righteousness. And the lesson of Job is simple. Our righteousness is insufficient it is insufficient to please God self-righteousness is actually of no value to God what is of great value to God is a heart that trembles at his word and is obedient to his word what is of great value to God is a person who cries out to God for every one of the spiritual strengths and the powers that he makes available through his spirit and through the life of Jesus Christ being lived in us. And so each one of us then must be like David. Let's see what else David said in Psalm 51, the very <coughs> famous psalm, Psalm of Repentance. In Psalm 51, 
David said, hide your face from my sins, in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is Psalm 51, verse 9. In verse 10, David prayed and said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. He did not rely on his own righteousness. In Psalm 19, Psalm 19, David also prayed to God and asked him to show him his secret sins. You know, brethren, the the interesting thing about each one of us is that when we're self-righteous, we can't see we're self-righteous. Others can. In fact, self-righteous people generally are getting upset with other people, judging them, criticizing them, condemning them. Here in Psalm 19, notice what it says in verse 12. Psalm 19, 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse you, me, from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let's go back to the book of Job. We were in uh, chapter 13. And notice in verse 13, Job chapter 13, and here in verse 13. He had become so frustrated and, well, I guess you'd say annoyed, but disappointed really with his friends because here in verse 13 he said, Hold your peace, let me alone, that I may speak and let come on me what will. Ooh, ah, did you hear that? He said, let come on me what will. Here's the the poor man, stricken with boils. Just a a horrible sight to look upon. And he is still maintaining his own righteousness. (coughs) Excuse me. Notice what it says here in verse 14. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, that is, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. In other words, but I am righteous, I am good, and I will maintain that righteousness. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears, Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Brethren, would you be justified by your own righteousness? Well, you know the answer to that. We're not justified by our own righteousness. We're justified by Jesus Christ's life. By his blood, we are made just before God. And that grace that we live under through the sacrifice of Christ, enables us to maintain a position of justification. So we know and understand that, but Job didn't. He was a pioneer. We have the scriptures of the New Testament to rely upon. 
This man was learning the fundamental basis of his conversion, which was to repent of his self-righteousness. Let's go on now a little further, this time to (coughs) chapter 23 and verse 4. Job now is uh, answering in verse 1, it says, Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. Now verse 4, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. You know, Job was so convinced of his own righteousness that he really did believe that if he got sat down face to face with God, God would say to him, Job, I know you're a good man. I know that you obey me and you seek me and you try to do everything which is right. And you know what? We know from chapter 1 that God did know that. The real issue was this. Job's righteousness was of no lasting value to God. And God used a young man who had sat through all of these conversations, a man by the name of Elihu, to start to get Job's attention. Let's go to <clears throat> a little further on. Chapter 32, verse 1 says, So these three men, that is, the friends of, of Job, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. There it is. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram, against Job, was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. And so this man, young man Elihu started to come from a different perspective of the other three men. <clears throat> he spoke with an understanding and a wisdom that God had given him. And so he said to, to Job that he was able to see that this man was self-righteous. He spoke to him and uh, he finally said here in... Um, Chapter 35, one of the most important, uh, you might say, (coughs) principles uh, that Job needed to learn. In In Job chapter 35 and in verse 1, it says, Elihu spoke moreover and said, Think you this to be right, that you said my righteousness is more than God's? And of course, Job would have said, what? I didn't say that. I didn't say I was more righteous than God, but Elihu carried on. He said, for you said, what advantage will it be unto you? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer you and your companions with you. And then Elihu says something, which I think is very helpful for every one of us. He said, look under the heavens and see. And behold, the clouds which are higher than you. He said to Job, if you sin, what do you against him? Or if your transgressions be multiplied, 
what do you against him? If you be righteous, what give you him? Or what receives he of your hand? Your wickedness may hurt a man as you are, and your righteousness may profit the Son of Man. Now, normally I don't uh, use the Living Bible as a Bible that I study or read, but occasionally I will use it to just see how it puts things. And in this particular passage, this particular part of the book of Job, verse 6 is, I'm going to paraphrase the paraphrase. It says that Elihu spoke to Job and virtually said this to him. If you sin, what will that do against God? He said, if your transgressions be multiplied, will that knock God off his throne? In other words, if we do sin, does God's plan of salvation come to a a terrible halt? You know, does God look down from heaven and say, oh no, Mrs. So-and-so is about to sin. That means that Oh, I won't be able to... Oh, that is the end of her whole plan. Of course not. Of course not. Because Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Jones or Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover the penalty of that sin. But notice the next part. In verse 7. If you be righteous... What give you unto him? You know, does God sit in heaven every day? And every time you sin, he just becomes so discouraged and the whole plan of salvation's over. Or on the other hand, when you do the right thing by your own strength and your own self, does God say, wow, great, the plan of salvation can continue because I have a righteous man or woman. You know, God's plan of salvation does not depend on you and me. If there was just one person on the whole earth that was a true Christian who relied totally and completely on the sacrifice of Christ, God would continue the plan. But we know it's greater than that. We are the first fruits. We are the people that God has raised up And he gave us the sacrifice of Christ to take away our sins. But then, brethren, he wants us to replace our own righteousness with his righteousness. Let me say that again. God wants us to replace our own righteousness with God's righteousness. So those of you who know you've got natural patience, natural love and compassion, You know, natural wisdom. Great. But God cannot have a situation where we go to him in the future as a spirit being, when we have the power of being a son of God. You know, we're, we're ruling over some galaxy or, you know, if anything, just a, a star and, a, and, a, and a, a solar system. God can never have a situation where you and I will say to God, well, you couldn't have done this without my righteousness. It's easier to acknowledge and recognize our sins 
and to repent of those and put them before God and Jesus Christ than it is our righteousness. So think for a moment. What little secret area of life do you hold back as your own and do not give to God? Do you let him take care of all of the the weaknesses that you have? You say, God, you can take care of and help me with my um, lack of patience or my anger, my temper, um, you know, some of your sins. But God, don't you touch my, you know, my righteousness, my my, um, ability to help and serve other people, serve in the church and act as a deacon and be a good deacon. Uh, God, that's, that's my department. That's, I'll, I'll be fine with that. If you're a deacon, you know that you have to pray each Sabbath for God to help you to be a good deacon, to give you the patience and the wisdom, the love and the, and the kindness towards the members of the church. If you've got, you might say, a strength of being submissive to government. Maybe you were in the armed forces and you, you learnt to submit to authority. Well, if you do that on your own strength, then you will ultimately fail. Whereas if you rely on the spirit of Jesus Christ, which was a spirit of obedience, then it'll be Christ's obedience in you which will enable you to have the faith to follow God and Christ and the government of God in the church. Let's have a look at Job because you remember we read (coughs) that he actually wanted to argue with God. He wanted to discuss things with God. Well, God finally gave him his wish in chapter 38 and he came out of a whirlwind. Here was Job sitting in the in this pile of ashes and still in a terrible state. And in Job 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. And then God asked a question. And you know what, brethren? He could ask us the same question. Where were you, Job? doesn't say that, but where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched out the line thereof upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? You know, when God made the earth, he had to balance it perfectly. He had to put the the mountain ranges here in this particular part of the world to counterbalance another mountain range down on another part of the earth so that when the earth spins, it spins perfectly and everything is in order. You know, God said to Job, Job, where were you when I planned the earth? Were you there? Did I say, oh, Job, excuse me a minute. I'm about to plan the earth. I would like your advice and input. Job wasn't even in existence. You know, we can ask the same question of ourselves. God could say to you, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Did I rely on you? Did I need your advice and help? Was I so 
insufficient in wisdom and power that I had to rely on you? Well, of course, it's laughable, isn't it? It's so completely laughable. Let's read on. Verse 9, when I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness a swaddling band for it and broke up uh, for it my decreed places and set bars and doors. He's saying, where were you, Job? And it goes right through chapter 38 and chapter 39. Take the time to read it. And then finally, in verse 40, chapter 40, sorry, moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall you contend with the Almighty? Shall you argue with me, Job? He said to him, He that reproves God, let him answer it. And Job's reaction and answer in verse 3 is, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, you'd think that God might have said at that point, Well, good, Job, I'm glad you've learned the lesson. He didn't. Look at verse 6. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man, and I will demand of you and declare you unto me. Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me for you have been that you may be righteous? Job, are you going to argue the point? Are you going to argue with my decisions because you're so self-righteous and say, well, really, I don't agree with what God did there. I wouldn't have done it that way. Brethren, can you see the problem with self-righteousness? That ultimately we would argue with God himself to his face and question him. And that's why you and I cannot be in God's kingdom if we're self-righteous. In fact, I'm going to put it this way. God cannot, God must not, and God will not have a self-righteous person in the kingdom of God. I'll say it again. He cannot, he must not, and he will not have anyone in his kingdom who's self-righteous. So let me ask you the question, are you self-righteous? Can you see where you have been like Job? Maybe not exactly the same, but in essence, I can tell you the test that you can apply to know if you're self-righteous. If you judge, if you condemn, if you compare yourself with other human beings, then you're self-righteous. Every time you gossip... Every time you judge and condemn and put down a person so that you can put yourself up, you're self-righteous. Because that's what we as human beings do. You know, God looks down from heaven and he says, I'm not interested in how good you are and how righteous you are as a person. What I am interested in is whether you're going to rely on me for your righteousness and your goodness and your holiness. Whether you're going to look to Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, was very, very, very careful about this subject? You see, he never sinned. And you might say, well, he was, you know, he had 100% of the Holy Spirit. He was God. 
That's true. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is he could have sinned. And he relied on God and totally and completely. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights before the temptation. One time he prayed all night to have the spiritual strength. But here in John chapter 5, let's turn there, John chapter 5. Jesus Christ was aware so much of his humanness, of his fallibility, of his weakness as a, as a, as a flesh and blood human being, that this is what he said in John 5 and in verse 30. He said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He did not trust himself humanly. And so every day he went out into the streets or out on the boat with the disciples or wherever he went, armed with the righteousness of God the Father. And he trusted and he relied on God the Father and not on himself. He was so careful about not trusting in himself that when we read here in uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, where are we here? Um, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. <coughs> And in verse 16, he was able to answer the young man this way. In Matthew 19, verse 16, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, that to me, that's a, a perfectly good question, is it not? Good master, this is Matthew 19, verse 16. Good master, what good things shall I do that I might have eternal life. Now, Jesus Christ might well have answered, as it says here in uh, verse 17, the latter part thereof, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. But you see, the beginning of verse 17 tells us a great deal about Jesus Christ. And he said unto him, Why call you me good? There is none good but one. Brethren, if Jesus Christ had to say to his, of his father that there is none good but one and to say to this young man that he was not good, pray tell me, where does that leave you and me standing? Well, believe it or not, it leaves us not standing, but rather flat on our face in complete surrender to God and acknowledgement and recognition that we are not good, even though we want to think of ourselves as being good, even though we want to think we are righteous and good, we are not good. Any goodness we have has been tainted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so even our goodness has been sullied and has been influenced by the evil that is of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Well, brethren, you and I have been called to live a different life. And frankly, I'm going to tell you something. If you can learn from this sermon the fact that you lift all of that self-righteousness off you and hand it over to God and say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be proud and I don't want to be in a position where I'm judging and condemning other people all the time. Then let me tell you, brethren, it will give you a, a relief. No longer will you compare yourself with others. You know, the problem with compar- comparing ourselves with others, making comparisons, you either th- we either think we're more spiritual or more righteous than another person, better, or we think we're less righteous and we think we're inferior. Once we jettison all that and we rely on the righteousness of Christ and we give him the credit and the glory when we do the right thing, if we can do that, then God can work with us. So this is the essence of what Job had to learn. Let's go back to the book of Job and notice the beautiful ending to this particular book. Job finally did repent. He came to a deep repentance and recognition that his righteousness is not worth a cracker. Job 42 verse 5. Job said to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And he didn't just repent of his carnality and his sins. He repented of his, you guessed it, self-righteousness. So I asked the question again, are you self-righteous? You know what, if you answer no to that, that's the best proof that you are. And if I do the same, the same thing. We all put our own righteousness, our own measure of goodness as the benchmark, benchmark, whereas we should put Jesus Christ as the benchmark in our life. Let us go to another parable Uh, This time in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And notice that Jesus Christ was totally aware of the sinfulness of self-righteousness. In Luke chapter 18, and uh, notice here uh, in verse 9. It says, and he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, trusted in their own righteousness, that they were righteous and despised others. See, there's the problem. If you despise others, it is an absolute sure way of telling that you're self-righteous. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. (laughs) I always always find that interesting. He, He didn't pray to God, he prayed with himself. But he did address God. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, and smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful. God be merciful, he said to him, to me a sinner. I tell you this, uh, sorry, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself, including Job, shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, God cannot give you the blessings he wants to give you if you're self-righteous. Because if he does, what will happen is your head will grow to double the size that it is already. And you will get around being an absolute pain to everyone. I was talking with uh, some people just the other day about some of the leaders that we have in God's church. And they said they have noticed how the men that God has used to do the work here in the last few years have actually become more and more humble. And uh, it's, 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 it's great to see. It's great when you can see people in God's church growing in humility and growing in the stature of trusting in Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus Christ was described as meek? Now, a lot of people think that means weak. It doesn't. A meek person is a person who puts their total trust in God and allows God to direct their life. Jesus Christ did that. He sought his Father's will at every turn. We too must be doing the same thing. Please notice, brethren, Romans chapter 10. I think this is an amazing scripture because it describes so many people that I know and you know, people who are sincere, <clears throat> people in the church and people outside of the church who have not really yet come to a deep understanding and recognition of the righteousness of God. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul, remember, of course, was an Israelite. He was actually of the tribe of Benjamin, and he loved them. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. But I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of what? Of God's righteousness and going about to establish what? Their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, if you have your own righteousness, what's it called? Obviously, self-righteousness. Brethren, to be able to acknowledge and recognize where you take pride and you think that you're great in certain spiritual areas, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, um, love, goodness, gentleness, all those things, but you rely on yourself. And frankly, it's of no value to God. He can't do anything with it because it ultimately will fail. And as I said before, he cannot have people in his kingdom 
who will hold out and say to him in the last, in the final analysis, God, you couldn't have done it without my faith, without my patience, without my goodness, frankly. So we've got to replace our own righteousness with God's righteousness. Otherwise, we're no different to the Pharisees. We're no different to all of those people that go down every Sunday morning to the, the local church and uh, they're sincere, but they do not have and understand God's righteousness. So the key then to God's righteous righteousness is knowing that God is constantly watching and is involved in our life. Self-righteousness and hypocrisy go hand in hand. And if we have a relationship, maybe with our wife or our husband or a dear friend in the church, go to them and ask them and say, can you show me or tell me or let me know where I am self-righteous? Now, you better be prepared for an answer and you better be prepared to take it. Don't ask the question and then get upset with the person when they, when they point it out. You know what? Being in God's church is the, the greatest privilege that any one of us can have. And if we can acknowledge and recognize where we have held back ourselves and frankly others by our self-righteousness, if we can come to see that, we can recognize that, we're going to make great growth in our Christian life. I want to close with the scripture in Matthew chapter 5. You know and I know that Jesus Christ gave the Beatitudes, as they are called, as you might say, the foundational or the fundamental principles by which we as Christians are to live our lives. It's almost like this was uh, Christianity 101. Uh, he, he took his disciples, he sat them down, he said, now listen, guys, I'm going to tell you what it is that you need to do to be successful as a Christian. And so the first thing he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means that you know that you have no spiritual strength often by yourself. In other words, you divest yourself of all your spiritual richness, but certainly your own spiritual concept of yourself. Notice what it says here then in verse 4, Blessed are those that are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's not the mourning the death of someone, it's the mourning of the death of our human nature, the old man. And then we come down, and we mention meekness uh, in verse 5, but look at verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Brethren, the question is obvious, isn't it? Whose righteousness? Which righteousness? Well, the righteousness of God and of Jesus Christ. Brethren, when we divest ourselves of trusting in our own righteousness and take upon the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ, then let me tell you, brethren, God's going to be able to do a great work and a great deal with you 
and through you. So may I ask you at this time to consider deeply this important subject and take upon you the righteousness of God.